uh, he was one of the best apologists of the Christian faith in the 20th century. And Lewis was asked to write his book, The Problem of Pain. And when he was, he, uh, he told the publisher, I want to uh, publish it anonymously. Here was the quote from his preface. If I attach my name to this, I'll be forced to make statements that will appear to be ridiculous to anyone who knows me. That's the feeling I had when Buster asked me to preach this morning. <laughs> That's it. Uh, what I know is that I do not live up and live out many of the things that I say. If you don't believe it, talk to my wife and children. They'll be glad to give you numerous examples. Um, but Lewis Publisher explained to him, he said, you can just write in the preface and explain that you don't always live up to these things. And so with that disclaimer, we'll begin this morning. Let me ask, what did you expect when you got here this morning? I'm assuming that many of you expected that Buster would be back, and so I know that you, like me, are disappointed. No one wishes he were here more than me. Um, some of you came expecting great music, and we have heard some wonderful music. Um, others came expecting fellowship with folks that maybe have been on vacation you haven't seen for a while, but did you come expecting to hear a word from Almighty God? You see... We're going to be in the book of Hebrews today, and in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's able to pierce right down to the division of soul and spirit and judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So as we come this morning and open the Word of God, our expectation should be that God will use this to examine our hearts um, the Lord said to the prophet Isaiah that when his word goes forth, it won't return without accomplishing his purpose. So he's got a purpose for you to be here this morning. And so as we turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, or you can just open your bullet and you'll find it there at the top, uh, I want us to look at the prologue together and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts using this passage of Scripture. We read there that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray and ask the Lord to use this passage of scripture to speak to us this morning. Fathers, we come into your presence. We ask that your spirit would teach us as we open this passage that he might apply it to our hearts and that we would be changed as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the most popular books and movies of the last several years, well, I thought we had it up there on the, there it is, is this, Eat, Pray, Love, One Woman's Search Across Italy, India, and Indonesia for Everything. The book spent 187 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. That's over three and a half years. And it's written by a woman named Elizabeth Gilbert. She was a successful writer in New York. She and her husband seemed to have everything. She lived in a huge home out in the Hudson Valley, but she was miserable. So one night she locks herself in her bathroom 
And she cries out, to use her phrase, to whoever might be listening. And she heard a voice. But it was her own voice speaking within, she said. This was my voice as I had never heard it before. How can I describe the warmth and affection in that voice as it gave me the answer that would forever seal my faith in the divine? Did you catch that last word? The divine. The voice that she heard was the divine voice within. Here's her quote. It's in your bulletin. God dwells within you as you yourself, exactly the way you are. Somewhere within all of us, there does exist a supreme self who's eternally at peace. And that supreme self is your true identity, universal and divine. So if you're looking for revelation, if you're, look, if you're looking for uh, a transcendent direction to give purpose for your life, what you do is you look within. That, that's, where, that's where you'll find it. It's that spark of divinity in all of us. Well, that thinking is in stark contrast to most of the philosophy of the 20th century. As a matter of fact, most of those people looked in vain for any transcendent truth that would provide direction and meaning in our life. Um, when I was in college, I studied philosophy, and one of the gentlemen we studied was Ludwig Wittgenstein. Don't you love that? That's a great pronunciation there. Anyway, he was voted by the Philosophical Forum as the most influential philosopher of the 20th century. And he had seven propositions which really were the foundation of his thinking. And one of them was this, the world is all that is the case. As you look around, empirically what you can touch and what you can see, that's all there is. And his final proposition was this, what we cannot speak about, those things that we can't touch and see and, and feel, we must pass over in silence. Well, I submit this morning that in contrast to the narcissism of Elizabeth Gilbert and the pessimism of 20th century philosophy stands the biblical perspective. And that perspective is represented beautifully by this gentleman, Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer uh, had a trilogy of books which were kind of the foundation of his thought. The third of those was, He is There and He is Not Silent. He chose that title specifically to rebut and respond to Wittgenstein's idea that there is no transcendent truth that gives meaning and direction of life. And Schaefer has this quote in his book. The infinite personal God is there, but also he is not silent. And that changes the world. Schaefer was just echoing the thought of our writer in Hebrews chapter 1. If we take that beautiful sentence, which is all one long sentence in the original language, those first three verses, and we distill it down to its essence, here's what it says. God has spoken to us in his Son. That's the message that the prophet has here. That Jesus Christ is the supreme, unique, and final revelation of God given to us that we might know him personally and be changed as a result. Now this is a profound and amazing thing that the God of the universe desires to communicate with you and me. That, that he has spoken to us and he says there in those uh, verses that God's communication began long ago through the prophets in the Old Testament. And that progressively he unfolded before the uh, children of Israel that revelation until it reaches its apex and its finality 
in the person of His Son. The communication that we have in Jesus Christ is both personal, that is directed to us that we might know Him, and also purposeful, that as a result of this revelation, we might be changed, we might be different people. The writer here gives seven participial phrases that are used to describe Jesus the Son as God's final revelation. And I've tried to group them in three headings, so we'll look at them one by one. First is this, Jesus' supremacy in relation to the universe. There in the text you'll see that um, the writer says that Jesus is the heir of all things through whom God made the world. Now, the first phrase, that Jesus is the heir of all things, is a reference back to Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And there we read that God says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So at the end of time, at the final consummation, Christ will return and as a reward for his resurrection triumph over sin and death, he will inherit all things. But not only that, that's the end. At the very beginning, we read that he was the one through whom God made the world. Think about Genesis chapter 1. God spoke the word, the world into existence. When we get to John 1, we have an echo back to Genesis 1 where we read this, that all things came into being through him, that is through Jesus Christ. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He was there at the beginning. As a matter of fact, I have this neat little picture here of the Milky Way. And there's a quote in your bulletin. Uh, it says this, When the first nebula exploded into being, the sun was there willing it to happen. When the Milky Way was strewn across the night sky with its billions of stars, it was an act of divine artistry by the Son of God. Jesus Christ was there in the beginning creating the world. But what about this time in between? Well, the writer of Hebrews also says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Paul connects these dots in Romans 11 this way. He says, for from him, to him, and through him are all things. The whole universe is currently be, being sustained by the word of the powerful Christ. This word upholds is an interesting word. Don't picture Atlas holding the world on his shoulders and holding it up. The word actually connotes to us direction or purpose. It means progress towards an end or a goal. We might think of it in theological terms of providential direction. That, that God is guiding and building his church during this time. John MacArthur says that the universe is a cosmos and not chaos because Christ is upholding it. So the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. All things were created through him and for him. He's the originator of all things and the inheritor of all things. So whether we talk about creation or consummation, Jesus Christ is at the center. He's both the source and the goal of history. Thinking of it in this context here where the author is contrasting Christ with the many prophets that go before him, 
Think of it this way. Jesus is both the creator of the prophets and the inheritor of the promises which they made. They spoke the word of God, but Jesus is the word of God. So therefore, he is the supreme and final revelation that God has for us. Secondly, let's look at the uniqueness of Christ in relation to God. Look at verse 3. It says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. This word radiance means to send forth light. Think of it as the relationship between the sun and its rays. There you go. The rays are a part of the sun. They're, they're of the same essence, and yet they're distinct. They're different. And like the rays, Jesus manifests to us the very light of God. Christ says, I am the light of the world. So just as the rays of the sun light and warm the earth, Jesus is the glorious light of God given to us shining in our hearts. The Apostle John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld that glorious light. When he describes Jesus as the radiance of God's glory, the emphasis is on the deity of Christ. But the next phrase, that he's the exact representation of his nature, focuses more on the humanity of Jesus. The word here used for exact representation is an interesting word. Um, think of it maybe if, if you've ever seen a stamp that a notary republic makes and they take it and put it on a document. Or thinking further back, if you think of hot wax being used to close a document and then the seal of an important person being put on it. That's the exact representation. That's the picture that the writer is giving us here. Paul puts it in Colossians like this, that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, Jesus is the human face of God. But as we think about these balanced picture of Christ, let's focus in a little further on this concept of glory. How does the glory of Jesus relate to his unique revelation of God to us? Well, we'll think back for just a minute to the Old Testament. The prophet par excellence in the Old Testament is Moses. Now Moses, when he had led the children of Israel out of uh, captivity in Egypt, he comes to Mount Sinai and there God calls him up on the mountain. And on the mountain, a thick cloud covers it. And, and there are these thunder that's rolling and these flashes of lightning. And it says there that the Lord's glory descended upon the mountain in the form of fire. And it's in this context that the writer uh, Moses tells us in Numbers that God spoke mouth to mouth with Moses, directly to him, and revealed to him the essence of Old Testament revelation, the Ten Commandments. They were given to him there. And when Moses descends that mountain, his face is luminous. It's shining it because it is reflecting the glory of God. You see, Moses' identity as a prophet from God was confirmed by his shining face. It authenticated the reality of his message. Well, we learn from Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, and we know also from the Old Testament, that the glory that Moses had on his face was reflective and temporary. But we compare that to the glory of the final prophet, Jesus Christ. His glory is intrinsic 
and it's perfect. Moses' glory was derived and fading, but Jesus' glory is original and eternal. There's a quote in your bulletin. I think I have it. Here we go. It says this, The eternal dignity and divine glory of Christ's person invests His Word with climactic and final authority. What Christ says has import because of who Christ is. You see, it's the person of Christ that demands that we listen to the revealing Word of Christ. We have a picture of this in the New Testament when we come to the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and while he's there, Jesus is transfigured. His face shines like the sun. His garments become as white as snow. And Moses and Elijah appear there with him, and Peter has this great idea. He says, why don't we just make a little tabernacle or tent to all of you? And at that point, God descends in a bright cloud. He overshadows the entirety of them, and a voice comes out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And what does he say? Listen to him. Hear him. He is the final word. And when Peter, James, and John open their eyes, Jesus alone remains. You see, he is the apex. He's the finality. He's the supremacy of what God is trying to reveal. All the work of Moses and those older prophets were simply preliminary and preparatory. Well, Finally, I want us to look briefly at Jesus' finality in relation to us. We've, we've been talking about the person of Christ, the radiance of His glory and the revelation of it. Now we focus a little more on the work of Christ, what He has done in relation to us. We come to a much more personal statement. You see, God spoke to us for a reason. He spoke in order to communicate. Think of it this way. When... When you have a child, I was meeting with someone just this past week and we were talking about his, his new baby, uh, relatively baby, and he said, you know, they're just getting to the point where they can begin to speak, they can begin to communicate. So all of a sudden the relationship is, goes to a whole new level because communication is taking on verbal form. God's speaking to us, his communicating to us, has the purpose that we might be into, into relationship with him. He's taking the initiative in the person of his son. But there's a barrier that, pre that prevents this relationship. And that barrier is mentioned in that phrase that when he had made purification of sins. You see, sin is the problem. We live in a society where sin is, is really no longer understood by the vast majority of our culture. Fifty years ago, a gentleman named Carl Memminger wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Sin? Memminger would probably be shocked if he looked around today because the, the gradual fading away of the concept of sin is pervasive in our culture. But sin, the Bible says, is a disease that infects all of humanity. Every one of us is infected with the sin disease. John describes it in 1 John as this. He said, sin is rebellion. It is the assertion of our will in rebellion against God's direction and control in our life. Here's the example I like to use uh, because it's personal and I really understand it. I have three daughters, one of whom is particularly strong-willed. Well, I, I had a friend from theological school, and he's a little older than me. He had three daughters, 
and I was able to kind of watch and learn from his parenting. And Bill had this great line. He would say to his child, he said, sweetheart, you must learn to obey. I said, that's good. I like that. I'm going to use that. So my three-year-old child does something that I've asked her not to do. And I sit her down, and I'm, I'm talking with her, and I said, darling, I want you to learn. You must obey. And she said, I want to obey me. I won't say which daughter that was. That, in essence, is what sin is. That's the cry of all of our hearts. It's rebellion. I want to obey me. Well, the Bible says, the writer of Hebrews actually describes sin in a slightly different way. He says sin is unbelief in chapter 4. The problem is we really just don't believe what God says, both about the consequences of sin and about what is really best for us. We think we know better than him. And it's this unbelief that leads to disobedience which makes this barrier or this separation in our ability to communicate and relate to God. Well, the good news of the gospel is this, is that God has made a provision to deal with this sin problem. And he says here that Jesus Christ had made purification for sins. Notice the verb tense there. It's very important. What the writer says is that at a single point in time, past tense, 2,000 years ago, on the cross, Jesus Christ died, and when he did, he made purification for our sins. He accomplished redemption. The Westminster Confession says that Christ has fully satisfied for all of our sins. The writer of Hebrews, six different times in his book, talks about this once-for-all transaction that happened on the cross. I want to just bring your attention to three of them. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer says that Jesus does not need daily to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of his people because he did this once-for-all time. When he offered up himself. In chapter 9, he says it this way Christ entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption has already been obtained, it has already been accomplished through what Christ has done. And then last week, um, Steve brought a great message to us, but he used this text in the, in the conclusion, and I'll share it again. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, where he says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's the last phrase used in the prologue. It's used in chapter 1 of Jesus, and then he uses it here in chapter 10 at the conclusion of his argument. And when we come to this, realize that Jesus seating at the right hand of the Father indicates rest from his work. He has accomplished what he came to do. It is finished. When he said that, redemption was accomplished so that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for. When, when we sang this morning that Jesus paid it all, what that means is all of our sins, if we by faith have trusted 
in the work of Christ to deal with the sin barrier in our own life, if by faith we've made him our own, then we can, with the hymn writer, say, Jesus has paid it all for me. Now, this is a radical gospel. It's open to abuse, certainly. Uh, Paul dealt with it in Romans 6. Well, if that's true, should we sin that grace may abound? And he says, may it never be. Those who would respond like that have not understood the grace offered to us in the gospel. Well, we've looked now at three different headings describing the revelation of God in the person of Christ. So as we come to the end, my question is the same question Paul had in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? What shall we do? Well, I've got three application statements in your bulletin. The first reads like this. It says, the revelation of God's glory in the person of Christ is not primarily to inform us, but to transform us. I mentioned earlier 2 Corinthians 3, and in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul has an amazing statement. He says this, he says, We all, with unveiled face, Moses had a veil over his face when he was reflecting God's glory, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, as we see the glory of the resurrected Christ, it's meant to change us and make us different people. Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John has a vision. He has a vision of the resurrected Christ. And this is what he says. I turned and I saw one like the Son of Man. He was, he was clothed in a robe that reached to his feet. His head and his hair were white like wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze caused to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. What is the response of John to this vision of the resurrected Christ? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Now think about that. According to the Bible, John was the apostle whom Jesus loved. Probably no human being was in closer relationship to Jesus in his earthly time than John. And yet, John has a vision of the glory of the risen Christ, and it's a fresh vision, and he falls on his feet, on his face, awestruck. This morning, we need to ask that God would open our eyes, that we might see Jesus in a fresh and new way, that we would behold his glory, and that God would use this to, in, to evoke in us a response of wonder and worship, even as the Apostle John does here in Revelation 1. Secondly, I believe the conscious reality of our sins, both committed and forgiven, and I said that specifically like that. The conscious reality of sins that we've committed and yet have been forgiven should reshape our perspective and understanding of how we view our lives and its circumstances. Um, the example I want to use here is this man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, um, an incredible 
man. He was a theologian and pastor from Germany. Um, he came to America to study theology and to teach at Union Seminary in New York. And he came just as Hitler was ascending to full power in Germany. And he was invited to stay here because the people in America realized the danger that he faced in Germany. But Bonhoeffer felt called to stand with his people and to preach to them in the midst of great personal danger. As a matter of fact, Bonhoeffer joined the resistance and was involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler. He was found out and eventually was martyred. He wrote many letters while he was in prison, and this is an excerpt from one of his letters. You have it on the screen there. It says, Please don't ever get anxious or worried about me. I am so sure of God's guiding hand that I hope I shall always be kept in that certainty. You must never doubt that I'm traveling with gratitude and cheerfulness along the road where I'm being led. He, he writes this from a concentration camp. Okay? Get that last line. You must never doubt that I'm traveling with gratitude and cheerfulness along the road where I'm being led. My past life is brimful of God's goodness. And my sins are covered by the forgiving love of Christ crucified. You see, it, it's, it's the experience and understanding of the depth of his forgiveness that gives him a different perspective on life. That he can look at things and say that my life is brimful of the blessings of God. And I have no doubt that this is the road that I'm being led upon by a good and gracious God. His perspective was changed as a result of his experience of forgiveness. Well, finally, the writer of Hebrews gives us his own application in Hebrews 2, chapter 1. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, where the writer says this, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. God has revealed himself supremely and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. He is God's final word, the apex of his revelation to us. Therefore, the responsibility is on us to pay very close attention to it, lest we take it for granted and begin to drift away you see, the church being written to here was under persecution and they were in danger of drifting away. And for us as the church today, if we don't pay close attention to the revelation of the glorious Christ, the danger is that we too might drift. So my prayer this morning is that God would give us a fresh vision of his glory in the person of Christ. That we would experience a new and a fresh the glory of sins forgiven, and that God would use these truths to pierce our heart and transform and change us as we go forth this week. Amen.